welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 263 and part two of my conversation with Texas-based percussion specialist, arranger, composer, and educator, Patricia Islas. We'll get back to her shortly. But first up, back to Marching Mizzou activities. This past week was homecoming week, and it was the first homecoming in two years. And it generally seemed to go well. Members of the band were involved in plenty of activities. We did our halftime show as a video game medley arranged by one of our recent Marching Mizzou alums, and we hosted our annual homecoming parade competition. That was the focus of my past few weeks, and it was exhausting, but all accounts seem to say that it went off pretty well. I was not only coordinating this event, but I ended up judging the drum lines for it as well. It also turned out to be the hottest homecoming in memory, with temperatures in the mid-80s for game time. Fortunately, the band made it through generally okay and did a great job throughout, and our football team won. I'm just really proud of our students there. The other news that came up this week was that Mizzou Athletics was finally going to allow our volleyball pep band to start playing at our volleyball matches. We'd heard that other athletic departments in our conference were allowing their pep bands to play, so it was a matter of time before we would finally get the chance to do so. So last night was our first time playing as an in-game volleyball pep band since the 2019 NCAA Volleyball Tournament. And it was a total blast. The students were excited, they were more involved in the game, and it was very clear that our presence was felt and appreciated by all those involved. All right, enough about me. Let's get back to Patricia Islas. In part one, released last week, which I hope you've already heard, we got to her work as a percussion specialist, composer, performer, arranger, and how she's managed to make a career out of what she does. This week in part two, we'll hear more about her background, her family influences, how her husband, Doug Bush, also a percussionist, fits in with her work, and an extended random ask question segment looking at, among other things, representation in the percussion world, martial arts, and Patricia's interest in space. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on September 14th, 2021. And it begins right now. You said you have a supportive family. Did you have any family members that were in the arts? Yes, a little bit. Um, not my immediate family. My parents weren't really musicians or artists. Um, you know, my aunts and cousins, not really. But um, my dad comes from a pretty musical family. His mom and her siblings were all musicians. Uh, she played the saxophone, which is funny because that's like one of my least favorite instruments on the planet. <laughs> but, but the story is she wasn't very good at it. <laughs> so another, her sister, one of her sisters played the violin and she was like on the radio. And my dad's uncle, uh, Joe Garcia, was like a, a drummer. He played the drums and he was pretty well known in the Dallas area back in his day. He learned the drums through just watching, 
you know, he grew up when like big bands were a thing and people would go to dances and, and that was how that was entertainment. And so he would at 10 years old, sneak out of the house and go down to these, uh, these clubs and just sit behind the drummer and watch the drummer all night. Cause wow. his, his mom didn't want him to play. His parents didn't want him to be a drummer. Like yeah. no, that's a useless profession. You, you can't do that. Obviously. Uh, and so he he just studied it by watching it and then he he would start to figure stuff out on his own and then occasionally like the drummer would want to take a break and like oh kid get in there and sit in on a song and so he would get experience that way um so you know it was really interesting so he was my dad's uncle so there's a big age gap there and I had started playing percussion just a, you know maybe a decade or so before he actually passed away um, but there was like some overlap there. And it was really interesting, I think, for him on his, from his perspective, because he used to always believe that you weren't a real musician if you read music. Like he knew how to read music, but uh, he started by just listening. And so he, he felt like there are a lot of other drummers who, because they come from like more of an academic angle, that there was stuff that they were missing. Uh, and so he was seeing me like talk about academic, <laughs> me coming in, learning how to play on a practice pad with all this technique stuff and reading music from day one. And he was just so impressed by what I could do. But I, I was not like a drum set player by any means. Like that was like the opposite of what I had been exposed to and the opposite of my nature. I wanted to do things a million times and I wanted to see it on the page and do it just like what was on the page. That was really cool. I I always wanted for my senior recital in, in college, I wanted to to play something with him. I wanted to like do a vibe drum set kind of duo, but he was really intimidated by that whole scene mm. uh, of like, you know, feeling judged, even though he was a really great musician. It was a different world. It was a totally different world from where he came from. So we didn't get that opportunity, but I did get to take a few lessons with him and we did get to, I get, get to hear him play a little bit. So you know, that was there, um, you know, some of my relatives say like, I didn't have a, a chance. You know, there's a, there's a story that my parents would tell that I kind of remember from when I, I think I had to be three or four at the time. I was really, really young. And, um, there are some women in town that worked with my dad, um, from like Europe and his job was kind of to entertain them for the week that they were here. And so we went to see Linda Ronstadt perform she nice. was performing in Fort Worth and it was yeah. like a lot of the Mexican folklorical pieces that she was doing at the time yeah. and I remember going to this auditorium and seeing it and like sitting in the seat and like seeing all the dancers and her voice was just, I can still remember her voice even as like a four-year-old yeah. and <laughs> the ladies that were there with us were just so impressed that I was like so laser focused on it the whole time like how is this little kid how does she have the attention span to hang on this and they're like, she's going to be a musician. She's, she has to be. Look at her. And uh, yeah, they're right. I think it was in my blood. I think it was in my DNA. I was going to awesome. be no matter what. Yeah. Have you seen the, the Linda Ronstadt documentary? I haven't. Oh, I haven't. So good. Like it's, they, there's been a, a pattern where some of the docs, some, some like kind of recent documentaries have kind of begun at the, at like the height. Yeah. And and that one, she's live singing You're No Good, and it is awesome. Uh-huh. And like and, and and like and then she gets into like her family background a lot and, and about the you know the folklore the for, folklorica stuff. Yeah. Did, which was incredible. Like and you just forget like 
I mean, she's someone who, unfortunately, because she's she's had, I think, Parkinson's, she yeah. just basically had to take herself out of performing. She can't do it anymore. And but like her voice is so good. Oh like, my god, so good. So good. <laughs> so powerful. Yeah, and and she yeah. can sing any style too. Oh, I know. That's what's so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I recommend it. Yeah. I I think it's called the sound of my voice or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for the Rick. I'll have to check that out for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. When you were in high school, did you? I you said you didn't. You didn't march, right? Mm-hmm. But you, were you doing? Were you doing like front ensemble or was this all just concert band related performing or the the like? I played in the front ensemble all four years of high school. I played timpani as a freshman. Um, I thought I might be a snare drummer, but uh, I realized. I, OK, so one thing that should be said, I think is pretty integral to my story. So I am very short. <laughs> I am like 4'10 with sneakers on. I am very small. Nope. Um, and so I think that has, uh, that has brought in itself some challenges as a percussionist to plays mm-hmm. instruments that have like a fixed height yep. that I've had to deal with. And also as an educator in a sense that I don't look my age and a lot of times I'm uh, mistaken for a student. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, Which at times can can be a compliment, honestly. Oh yeah, yeah. I totally take it as a compliment now. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely not young anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I played in the front ensemble. I thought I wanted to play to March Snare, but I realized like uh, that might not be that might not be in the cards for me because of my height. But I did I do really really loved playing keyboard instruments, so I ended up playing xylophone the other three years. So I had that experience there. I wasn't like on the field, but marching percussion and drumline was a big thing at my school even back then and then I had known about drum corps but wasn't quite sure what it was about I mean back then there wasn't anything nothing was amplified so you know they're using rock hard mallets and really heavy mallets and uh, I knew people had, that had gone and marched drum corps and they'd all come back with like tendonitis and like they screwed up their hands and so you know they were struggling to to get everything back in in good health and I didn't want to go through that process um, but when I went, went to college, you know, there was the marching band drum line that rehearsed and played at all the football games, but then there was a separate and it called it the A-line, um, which was the competitive line. And every two years, the A-line would travel to PASIC and compete in the indoor drum line competition there. So, um, my first year in college in 2000, I auditioned for and made it into the A-line. Uh, so play marimba in that group. And even though I had never marched, uh, a lot of the people that were in that ensemble had just finished marching or were currently marching different drum corps. Um, so I was exposed to that. And then, you know, I got to, to be about 21. I think my my potential age out year of drum corps was my first year of actual teching, teaching drum corps. Um, and I didn't tell anyone how old I was. Like everyone I was standing in front of, I mean, there were kids that were standing in the front ensemble that I was teaching that were like my age, <laughs> but I did not let that, <laughs> let them know that. And like a couple years later, it's like some of the kids were still in the group that were a little bit younger. They were like, wait, how old are you? They were like, you were, tw- you could have marched with us that first year. <laughs> um, but you know, for me, like that was fine. Like I could experience drum corps in that way um, from a, a teaching standpoint. And I, I was able to appreciate it 
for all of the great things that it can bring to someone. And, you know, just like things like uh, being able to have a singular focus for an extended period of time, you know, that was really, really cool. And back then, like not everyone had cell phones even, or, you know, the internet wasn't as involved in our lives as, as it is now. So you could really kind of shut off the world and just, hundred percent dig into this thing with all of these people who are also hundred percent focused on it. And that type of experience was really cool, even from the teaching standpoint, from the teching standpoint. There are things about it that, uh, you know, I didn't love, like, like I was saying earlier for me, part of, uh, part of my mental and, mu- and physical health is like playing music. And as a, a tech, I didn't really get any of opportunities to do that in the months that I was teaching drum corps. Also at the time, it it probably wasn't as trendy as it is now to have like multiple uh, front ensemble staffs. Like there are some people that I teach with now, like Lindsay Hartfelder, who's now the assistant percussion director at Capel, who just taught uh, cadets front ensemble this past summer. And, you know, there's like a team of them and they trade off and they get sleep and they take care of themselves. Yeah. That was, that was what? Happening. <laughs> Slackers sleep. <laughs> I know. Easy. Eating. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> what are they going to think of next? Naps? I know, right? <laughs> um, that was not really the case when I was there. It was kind of like you're in, you're all in, you're there all day. You're yeah. there all the whole thing. Um, you know, so, what's, and, and I'm sorry to, to jump in here. Yeah. But, uh, that's definitely come up with other people I've talked to who've, who've done drum corps, like in some form, like teaching specifically where they've realized that they, that like they wanted, they were in full in at some point, And then they've realized that, that they actually were more interested in being kind of like a, they, someone who could, who could show up here and there. Mm-hmm. like and maybe so they'll focus more on the writing and yeah. then come in to kind of check out and then they can go back or or someone like Julie Davila who I don't know if you know but she's but she's someone who who's done that for a long time and she really enjoys the um the actual adjudication of that mm-hmm. and like and that's her like one of her prime ways of staying in yeah yeah you, you know um there's so many benefits from 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 any activity like that. And, you know, with drum corps for me too, one of the things that I found challenging was there was just so much time. There's like so many hours of every day and it's almost too much time. Like I tend to hunt for things, uh, things that I do and try to do them fairly efficiently. So, you know, I don't need 30,000 reps of something if like 300 of them are really focused and intense and useful. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it like being there all day was was pretty intense in a, in a fact that like I would get fatigued, even though I enjoyed teaching and um, it was mentally and emotionally stimulating for me. And I you know, really like the challenges of it, like the amount of hours that you were doing this thing. You know, I felt like my effectiveness would get lower and lower and lower. So having the opportunity to come in for like a couple of weeks somewhere and be really focused in that couple of weeks and bring new energy to the group, yeah. you know, and a new perspective. Uh, I find that has been uh, maybe a, a better way for me to be involved in that activity than to try and be in the trenches all day, every day. Yeah. Um, and that's for me, but some people like also having the consistency, they like the, you know, the different parts of the year, like the beginning of the year feels like one thing. And then the middle of the season feels like another completely different thing. 
Um, and they want to be there for all of those steps because of the consistency. And I understand and appreciate that too. I think everyone kind of has to find what their tendencies are and, and lean on that more. I mean, it's the same with writing too. Like uh, when I'm writing or arranging or composing a piece, like the way I do it isn't the same as the way Doug do it, does it. Um, we have different methods and we have found ways that work really well for us. And it makes the process more efficient, but also uh, ends up in a better result. So that's true. I think that's true of teaching too. Yeah. Speaking of which, when does this Doug guy show up? In, in- <laughs> uh, he's actually down the hall. If you, <laughs> He's always around. He's kind of always around. He's, he's never left. He's never left. <laughs> <laughs> Won't get a hint. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do so much stuff together. I mean, we're married, of course, but, you know, I think for me, I think I always knew like whoever my partner was going to be also had to be a musician, not just an artist, but also a musician because so much of who I am is tied to music. So for someone to understand me completely, uh, I, I think it, it was going to have to be someone who plays music as well. And it just turned out that we're both percussionists and we like to hang out together. We like each other's company and That's we good. work together. And so uh, we've, you know, Team Eastlas was originally like a duo that we would perform in, but now I think it's kind of expanded to us teaching together and projects that we write together and, and all of that. So I don't know, it's a really kind of unique, but very special thing that we have. Um, I feel what, very- familiar. So when did you actually first connect? In college, Doug is a little bit older than I am, but he also grew up in the Dallas area, but at a completely different program (laughs) than I was like going to California and doing these things and like Midwest and doing these things. And he was in kind of a like inner city school that um, was doing like show band type drumming. Mm -hmm. Um, He had one band director, maybe, you know, depending on the year. uh, And he was kind of teaching as like the percussion teacher when he was in high school, like kind of feeling it out and like seeing what other people are doing and just, you know, making up cadences and writing beats and, you know, teaching the group and doing all that. So he's thankful for those experiences uh, to figure that out early on. But um, we met up in college, uh, you know, North Texas at the time, I'm sure it's fairly similar now, but there were probably like a hundred, 130 percussion majors even though my first year, my freshman year, he was there. I didn't even know about him until uh, the third year I was there, until like 2002. I had seen him perform at um, departmentals, but uh, that was the first time in 02 was the first time we were in an ensemble together. We both played in the A-line. He was on the bass line and I was playing marimba. The initial interaction was basically like we're at a a school in Denton, a high school in Denton. We're rehearsing the show and we're like in a gym and we're packing up, ready to go and moving my marimba to the truck. And he comes over and he's like, so I hear that you're like a a master at playing Street Fighter, like Street Fighter being this like video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Doug Doug will tell you that like he was in college like a year or two longer than he should have been because of Street Fighter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I got you. I got you. Um, but, you know, since he was on the baseline, a big part of being on the baseline is like your relationships with other people that you're you're with. And so instead of like uh, a sectional, they would pick up some taco cabana and then go back to the apartment and play Street Fighter all night. <laughs> and they were drumming. They were splitting stuff in between rounds. But, you right, know, sure. it was kind of their thing. So I went over there and was like, yeah, what the heck? Let's go hang. And um, 
I got really good at picking uh, the most overpowered character and then mashing the buttons really fast. I beat some fools that way. I killed some dreams that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of how we started initially hanging out and then as friends. And then I think it was probably the summer of 02. Bjork, again, um, was coming, the closest that she was coming to Texas was Colorado. She was going to be performing at Red Rocks, mm. the Red Rocks Amphitheater. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's such a cool venue. I, I've heard, yeah. Yeah, um, such a cool venue. And I didn't have any friends at the time that were willing to take the trek from Texas to Colorado. Um, but Doug had some friends that were planning on going. He was like, he knew I loved Bjork and was like, hey, do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. So the two of us kind of, we caravaned with the, this whole pack of people, but two of us in his Aerostar minivan, mm -hmm. with no AC. Oh boy. And like mid to end July in Texas, like drove the 15 hours from, from Dallas to, to Denver. And we got to hang out and, and talk a lot and, you know, um, get to know each other a lot more. And then the oh, the whole concert experience was incredible. I mean, it's kind of just this whole magical trip, to be honest. You know, we found ourselves like the day before, we we're just kind of exploring the park and we couldn't get into like the amphitheater because they were doing sound check. Um, but a friend of ours knew where this like little cave was. And so we kind of hung out in this cave and it was raining a little. And then you could hear Bjork's voice as she's doing the sound check from the, the stage like nearby. And it was like a realization moment. Like here is this icon that like I greatly respect and she's in the same spot that I'm in. I can't hear her, but I can feel her presence. Um, that was such a like magical experience. So um, right after we got back from that trip is when we started dating and then the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Did you just make me think with the Bjork stuff that, I mean, her voice is so that hurt. Like, that's the thing that ties everything together is this like extremely unique instrument that she's developed yeah. um, as well as just a billion influences. There's a great um, article about her. Um, I don't have the book cause I've given loaned it out cause I'm not teaching that class um, in the, and Alex Ross wrote um, a number of years ago. And, and I built a playlist based on for, for a class, I built a Spotify playlist based on on that book which was written like or that article is written like 2003 and it's like 70 tracks it's so because because yeah. it's it's not just her stuff but it's all of her influences and it, it's of course as you can imagine it's, it's like massive yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so incredible that's so great that you've done that for your students like yeah i mean one of the things i've noticed and i'm sure you've noticed it too is that unlike when i was growing up um how music was kind of part of your identity, like the style of music and the types of music you listen to is like the crowd that you're hanging in. Now kids don't really listen to a lot of music. Like I have a lot of students that spend all this time playing music, but you know, they just listen to music through Spotify and it's kind of just on while they're doing homework, but they're yeah. not like actively listening to it. They're not going to shows. Like I have so many students, even like, you know, younger educators that I've worked with, it's like, oh, cool. How many shows have you been to? And they've never been to like a live show. Like there was someone that I worked with where we took him for his birthday to his first like live concert. And I'm talking like of any genre, like never gone to see a professional symphony before mm. or, you know, uh, like a rock concert, like never done any of that. And you're teaching music 
Like what, yep. how does that happen? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there, there'll be like, you know, there's, there's a challenge of trying to teach young players to play music like Shostakovich and they just don't have the life experience to be able to really pull it off in a way that yep. is, you know, aware, but right. you know, you play the music for them and you explain this to them, the background and you explain to them about the composer and you think they kind of get it a little bit. But, I, you know, even listening to things like Bjork, like the more broad your uh, the things that you listen to, you start to hear these influences from other artists and relate oh, yeah. them together. And it's so cool to kind of follow those paths. And like as a as a creator to like realize like, oh, like there's a little bit of Beatles in this death metal song that I'm hearing. Like mm -hmm. what in the world? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That stuff is so cool. I co-teach a jazz pop and rock course uh, at Mizzou and uh, I do the pop and rock. The jazz professor does the jazz, but <laughs> yesterday was the first day I was teaching and, and it was kind of an origins of country music portion. And I, I, I don't know that I include in that like ballad opera, the beggars opera. Yeah. So, so yeah. like that's included. I include um, African banjo playing some blues is in there because, and like gospel, yeah. white gospel music. And, and yeah. just to kind of, and it's one of those things, like, I, I, I don't know how much the students get, but like, I'm trying to explain like, cause I've had people come up and be like, I hate country music. I'm like, okay, hold on. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm like, I don't love it, but, yeah. but I get where it's coming from. Yes. 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 Check this out. Check all yeah, these. Yeah. Yeah. Out. This is an influence. And you may not, you may not have caught that it's an influence, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, that stuff is, is, I love like watching those connections. You know, yeah. For, yeah. Me too. Me too. I love those kind of light bulb moments go on, you know, you know, for, for a lot of people, 2020 was a really crazy year. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, there are a lot of challenges that uh, we all went through. We all faced. Um, but for me personally, uh, it, it ended up being a really great year uh, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, Fortunately, at Coppell, um, we had the means to be able to continue kind of doing what we were doing in terms of like teaching lessons. A lot of the kids were able to financially still handle lessons and we got instruments to kids so that they were either at home with a head of marimba or the head of vibraphone and drums and stuff so we could continue making progress. We figured out ways to like do drumline camp over Zoom. It sucked, but it worked. We got some stuff done. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of other like little side gigs that happened because people were at home and trying to think creatively. Um, but one of the things that was so incredible for me because of the situation that I wouldn't have probably been able to take advantage of, except for the fact that we're all at home, is that there is a band called Nile, which is like this really kind of hardcore death metal bands um and i've followed what they've done and as a composer i'm really fascinated because uh even though on the surface that stuff can feel really uh kind of abrasive once you really start to listen to it you hear influences from classical music and um and like all sorts of genres of music in in it uh and so for my birthday which happens to be over the summer one of my presents, Doug was, you know, on social media and he discovered that like the lead guitarist and composer and uh, kind of the, the lead guy of Niall was offering lessons over Zoom. And, you know, I don't play guitar, but he's a composer. I'm a composer, <laughs> right? 
And so for my birthday, he hooked me up with a lesson with Carl Sanders. And so here I am in my studio and I got my vibraphone in the background and I've got my little pigtails and a little space thing in the back. Yeah. I can only imagine what this dude thought when I showed up on the other end of that Zoom call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. But um, I was like, you know, I want to pick your brain as a composer. I'm going to comp- pick your brain in terms of like all of this music that you've created. He's in his 50s now and he's be able to have an entire career where he's only played music that he's wanted to play. He's traveled the world playing music that he, on his terms, on stuff that he wants to do. And that is so impressive to me and so inspiring to me. Um, And then, you know, to try to pick his brain in terms of like, how do you write stuff? What's your process like? What are you thinking? Uh, So I came at him really hard. Like, this is who I am. I'm a composer. I do percussion. He's he's just kind of sitting there like, oh, oh my goodness. But it was incredible. Like it was supposed to be a half an hour lesson. We ended up going a full hour because he was enjoying it so much. And certain things like that, like I had read in an article that he, you know, is inspired by the Beatles. And there was a song on one of his, on Niles albums that was like the Beatles song. And it's like, I don't really hear it, but like, okay, if that's where it's coming from. And so asking him like, how do you get from Beatles? How do you get from like Paul McCartney to like death metal, like heavy, like Egyptian inspired death metal. And he was like, you know, I take melodies and I flip them around and I play them on different instruments and I change the tempo. Um, and it becomes this totally different thing. It's unrecognizable at the end, but and it doesn't matter that that's where it stemmed from. It doesn't matter that like, I'm inspired by Prince here and you don't hear any of that in the song. It's just, that's how I've gotten here. And yeah. he, you know, one of the things I personally struggle with sometimes in arranging is that I'll be asked to arrange a, a marching band movement where it's like music source music from like childish Gambino and Mahler at the same mm-hmm. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, of, of course. course. Of course. Those two, like, right. how could they not go? <laughs> <laughs> and I struggle so much because I feel like, those are saying two totally different things. If it was like, you know, metal and, and classical music or something that was kind of related together, the artists were saying the same things like, okay, I can make that fit. But how do you do, how do you do that in, in metal music? And he was just like, uh, well, I imagine like all of these artists are sitting in a room and they're having a conversation. Like, what would they come up with? What, what, what would they talk about? How would that come together? It would be something totally different than what individually they would do. Um, but that's kind of the beauty of it. And so having that insight from someone else in a totally different world was really reassuring and also uh, very educational for me. It's really cool. So trying to find ways to, to, to bring that to my students and getting them to listen to a more variety of music so they can have experiences like that, I think is important. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's tremendous. I, I love those connections um, yeah. as well. One of my favorites is uh and you know and you know how like when you hear an artist say something and you're and and it's immediately like oh it's like yeah like like i knew that was the case it was and it was missy elliott uh-huh. she was getting like a some some award i think it was like the vmas last year or something like that she got an award for her for her incredible videos which are amazing and and all that stuff and she mentioned as and she mentioned a bunch of people that were influences, and you weren't surprised to hear someone like Janet Jackson 
you know, yeah. for instance. And then she mentioned Peter Gabriel. And I was like, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> it's like, it is totally Peter Gabriel. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was just like, like that's, it was like, almost like that was the piece. That was what I, that was yes. the piece I was, was like, missing. I knew it was like that itch that you couldn't scratch. Yeah. It's like, where is it? What is the thing? And it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. I love those little, little tidbits of information that yeah. tie things together. Yes. On the gaps. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, uh, Patricia, I finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. All right. First question, uh, first couple are not actually random, but you, you've you kind of alluded to this, but I'm curious how you're going to answer it when I phrase it this way, which is what's an issue in percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? That That's a great question. I think kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, like not giving young students in college – the kind of the big picture and uh, giving them the tools and the awareness to understand what the job is really going to be about. Like, I don't know the best way to solve that because like I said, I mean, four years, five years is not a lot of time. Some people go on a little further and they get a master's degree or even doctorate. Like there are people now that are teaching in high schools that have doctorates. Um, But still uh, the focus being real life uh, skills. Um, And maybe that's just trying to get them involved in more programs intentionally from a a professor standpoint, making a bigger point to have them teach others and watch while they're teaching others so they can screw stuff up and get stuff wrong and then get comments on it. I mean, that is a big part of being a teacher is trying to manage a classroom especially of little kids, especially of like 12 year olds and even high school students in terms of discipline, in terms of pacing, in terms of things that are important and not important. Like you don't really get that experience until you're in the job right now. Um, and having even just a little practice of that, not even enough to build those skills, but just to aware, be aware like, oh, I'm not good at this. I need to pay attention here would be really useful. But maybe like <clears throat> having um, more people who are actually true educators come in and do clinics and talk to to classes, having fo- classes that are solely focused on uh, the, the classroom situation or teaching drumline or teaching percussion ensemble, because now there are opportunities for that for like real full-time jobs for a lot of people in, in the Texas area, but I know that's, that's changing in, in other parts of the country as well. So I don't know. It, 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 it feels like, like I've said before, trying to explain those things to young percussion educators coming in, like, yo, these are the things that you should really focus your attention on. And, yo, this is the way to, to alleviate some of your stress. It's like, you don't have to do everything, every single thing for your students. If you teach them how to take care of the equipment. If you teach them how to, um, you know, start a rehearsal. If you can't be there, then that stuff is taken care of and you have more time to do all the other things on your list. Like that's hard to explain to someone who's fresh out of college and they think they have it figured out. They think they have a plan, but I feel like, and I can always see it. I, you can see it on, you know, within a couple of, of days interaction with someone like, yeah, you, you're really excited about this, but you got, your time is limited. Your days are numbered. It's going to be about three years for you. And then you'll run into someone that's like, you know, maybe they're thinking about it a little bit differently, like, you know, but still underlying there's this level of competitiveness and this drive that's driven by winning and having their kids win things. And it's like, yeah, you probably got about five or six years and then you're, you're done. 
so that, you know, if there is some way to communicate to those kids before they even have those thoughts in their heads as students in college, like these are the things that are important. These are the values you need to start uh, fostering. Um, that would be it. Like, that's a big pet peeve of mine because I see so many people that are great and skilled and have a lot of potential that just get burned out by all, this, all of that stuff. And they, they can't enjoy the process of education and music and making music like I have gotten to. Yeah. I want that for people. Yeah. I hear that. That's great. Our next question, take this wherever you want, because we hadn't really focused on it. It's been alluded to, but being a woman who is a percussionist in a, in a mostly male field, mm-hmm. um, you can also include, uh, if you want, the, the racial aspect. If, if that has come up too, and I'm just going to, floor is yours. I feel like I have kind of more of a unique perspective than the average woman that is a percussionist in, in our field, because there are a lot of things that make me different <laughs> from the get-go. Yeah, I'm female and I play percussion, but I'm also brown and I'm also very short, and I'm also by nature a very introverted person. <laughs> so I think inherently outside of my control because of things that you know I just am naturally, uh, there are a lot of challenges that come my way or have come my way. I had to make a decision a long time ago, like I can concentrate on those things that make me different and the difficulties that I'm facing because of that, uh, or, I can shift my focus towards things I actually have control over and use those differences as fuel for me to be better, fuel for me to work smarter. Um, you know, I was able to be a part of the girls March camp that happened. In I, I was, that was, a, I mean, I was going to follow up with that, but please go ahead and t- yeah, talk about that. You yeah. know, um, I met Rachel Taylor. She's a little, we both went to North Texas, but I met her through social media because she's a bit younger than I am. <clears throat> and then had the opportunity at a few basics ago to introduce myself and mention, we chatted for a little bit. And I mentioned like, Hey, if there's anything that I can do to help, I'd love to just let me know. Um, and then a, a year or so later I ran into Sandy Rennick, who has been, you know, Rachel's mentor and been in the, on the girls March team since the, the beginning, she's OG faculty member. Uh, and she was mentioning that Rachel wanted to do this event in Texas. And I was like, yeah, you know, we're at Coppell and Annie's at Coppell. And I know she would be really excited to, to host it if she can. So they were able to hook that up. And then it happens um, the very end of school, like May, June of, of this year. <clears throat> and I didn't really know what to expect. I don't know that Rachel completely knew what to expect because the camps that she'd had before were so much smaller. She'd run a few before in different states, but you know, everything's bigger in Texas, right? (laughs) Uh, So, you know, we had a huge turnout, like, I don't know how many students eventually, like something like 40 or 50 maybe um, from different places. A lot of them were from Texas, but a few of them came from other states too, which was really cool. Uh, And then what was, you know, a little bit, Uh, of a challenge for me that I I didn't realize when I first got there was it's been a really long time since I've taught a camp where kids were coming from different places, like probably about 15 years. 
I've, I've taught a ton of drumline camps, but everyone's from the same school and there's like a culture and there's a vibe and everyone knows everyone. So it was really interesting at the beginning. It kind of caught me off guard. Like, even though it's a, a camp of, we get the guys out of it and there's only girls, there's still like that intimidation factor and like insecurity of like, everything's new and I don't know anyone. And what is this about? You know, but it was really cool to see, but kind of by the midpoint of the week, the girls start to relax a little bit and realize like, oh, this isn't about judgment or uh, like analyzing our comp competition. I'm just here to like build relationships and realize that I'm not alone and try some new things. Like there were some girls that, you know, were playing drum set for the first time in like Pagedur's masterclass and they were doing it in front of everyone, yeah. which could be really intimidating, but they're like stepping out of their comfort zone to try things like that or playing instruments that they haven't typically done in drum line before, like standing behind a bass drum, like figuring out what this is about or standing behind the quads and like, oh, this is kind of cool. This is a different thing. Um, and then they, the, by the end of, week, of the week, there was just like this, <clears throat> it was thick with this energy and this excitement and um, relationships have been built and connections made that hopefully will continue, you know, they'll be able to go back to their schools, wherever they came from, and still have these connections with girls that are out there doing percussion. Maybe they'll meet up at a contest or <clears throat> an audition somewhere and, you know, be able to relate that way. Um, but just to realize that they're not the only ones and there are others like them out there. And also to see an entire staff of women in the percussion field that have been successful. I mean, that was really cool for me because as a, as a percussion educator, I had only, for most of my career, I had been on a step maybe with two women on it in the percussion um, area. And then going to Capel was the first year I've experienced the situation where there were four of us. You know, there was Annie Chernow, myself, Lindsay Hartfelder, Eliana Yumuni, all on the percussion staff at some, some degree at Capel, which was really cool. But this trumped it by a mile because you have so many um, people from different areas, like different areas of expertise, which I think was really uh, effective and really cool. Um, I got to meet some people that I only known through online or like social media, like Paige Durr, I'd followed on Instagram, but I'd never met her in person. Uh, Lauren Teal, even I knew of Lauren Teal. We traveled in similar circles, but for whatever reason, I'd never like actually been in the same room together. And it was like, that first conversation and watching her do her masterclass is like, okay, Lauren, I see you and you're awesome. And it, it just clicks. Right. So <clears throat> that was really cool for me, but I had kind of a unique experience growing up in the sense that even in like the late nineties, my percussion program had a lot of girls in it. Like it wasn't 50, 50, but it was probably more like 40, 60 in terms of the percentage of girls that were around me. Um, so in middle school, I was seeing girls in the in the high school program and they were doing awesome stuff. And so I knew that was like an easy path, like that was normal. And then in the drum line, even though I was in the front ensemble, the snare line always had two to three girls in it. The bass line always had two to three girls in it. There was even a girl on the quad line for a couple of years. And and like three of the four years that I was at in high school, the drum line captain was female. You know, it was a girl on the snare line for two years and it was me from the front ensemble my senior year. So it wasn't weird when I was younger. It was just like, yeah, this, this is this is normal. And I wasn't aware that there was uh, an imbalance. I would go outside of my high school to do other things musically and it was not always the case. But because I had grown up in an environment where I saw other girls doing things, I've seen musicians like Shi'i Wu perform and it was like, yeah, okay, there's a space for me. 
I can continue to do this and there's there's room in the future for me to continue to do this as well. Um, and I think that's important for young people, um, whatever, however they identify themselves to see people that look like them doing what they're doing to be able to stick with it. And if anything else, like I think that was a big uh, benefit of doing something like Girls March is having this uh, dialogue with the, the younger girls, the younger generation and the older generation of like, here's, here's how I did it and this is what I'm doing and this is how you could potentially do it too, um, which I think is very important. Yeah, I've never set out to be good for a girl, like the title of woman composer or female percussionist, I, I kind of take offense to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's always just about being good being the best or being qualified. Right. Um, so I think it, you know, obviously there's a lack of diversity and we're improving that in the community. There's a lot of passion and there's a lot of drive to make moves going forward, which is exciting. Um, but I also think we just have to, it's very delicate and a very complex situation. I think we have to be very mindful of that and really careful about the moves that we make um, and the way that we move forward in trying to make our scene more diverse. You know, it's like, Pete, Pete, for example, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? You're getting ready in the morning, you're checking out your drip, and you're like, oh, what I need is a necklace. So you reach right, yes. in, Yeah, you, you do this oh, every, every morning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, every we morning, yeah. Like, yes. I mean, all this hair, what am I going to, you know, like I have to, I have so much to think about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so you reach into your jewelry drawer or whatever, and you pull out a necklace, and it's like in this knot, in this like, like, like really intense, like, like two other necklaces. And <laughs> at that point, you're like, okay, no, I'm not, I just, I'm not wearing one today because I don't have the physical dexterity for the next two hours to, to be able to deal with this. I don't have time. Like, you move on. Right. But, if you do sit down and you try to unravel it, like you can't just pull on the other side of the knot really hard because it's just going to make the problem worse. Right. So you have to look at it from all angles. You have to turn it around. You have to look at all at all sides and very carefully make a decision about where to uh, try to make alleviate the problem. Because at some point you're going to spend five or 10 minutes fighting with this thing and you're going to lose your patience and you're going to want to stomp on it on the floor. Right. So I feel like that's kind of the same thing. I think we have to be deliberate with moves that we make. I have to. I think we have to be conscious of the fact that actions speak louder than words. Um, I don't want to be in a situation where my picture is posted on, is promoted on some event, uh, a panel discussion, or a faculty on a, a camp or something, and because it's just a picture and a name that people assume that I'm there just because of that, because I'm a girl or because of the color of my skin. Like I have worked really hard my entire career to build uh, experience and skills and uh, all of the things that I build to earn the success that I've earned. So I think one positive way to, to help make progress is to continue to share you know, minorities and people that we don't typically see, but also share their work. It's like, here's this person that we're bringing in that's a, a fantastic musician, and now here's a video of something that they're playing so you can see for yourself. Here's an educator that we're gonna have talk on this panel, and here's some videos or links to, to some projects that their students have done so you can see their work. Here's a, you know, female composer, but here's a, also a piece that she has composed so you can listen to it and you can hear for yourself, like, 
the quality of their work. So I think being mindful and doing things actively like that is going to help the situation and improve it so that when I look around, um, there are more people that look similar to me or that I can relate to uh, in the community. But even so, I've never felt like I've tried to uh, lean on or, I don't know, dwell in the challenges um, because that's just a, a waste of time. <laughs> a waste of time and I have way too many cool things to do to spend any energy on that. So I try to help what I can, but also just being out there and doing it is, is hopefully being an example for others around me to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. I can, in my mind, see the necklace thing. Like, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> sure. I, I, I get what you mean. Um, <laughs> you don't wife, experience that all the time. Like, right. yeah. <laughs> my wife has, has some necklaces, but I try to stay away from that. Just try to put it back in the jewelry boxes, you know, and stuff like that. Whatever they're somewhere they may not yeah. be, but, but, um, but, you know, more seriously, I, the, the topic of, referring to it's it's really interesting to see the different ways that people see the the female the woman composer composer mm-hmm. the woman percussionist percussionist african-american yeah. composer composer <laughs> like yeah. i was originally on one camp on the well we should be we should celebrate that this is a woman composer and now i'm much more in the no this is a composer yeah like it's just a composer Yes. And here's their picture. Like, it's like the kind of the power of, of both, as you're saying, yes. the, the music that we're yeah. sharing, but I, and, and I've been tying it in a lot of my classes. I will frequently try to make sure I have a picture of this person mm-hmm. and say composer. Yes. Not woman, well, not composer of color. Yes. Like, <laughs> I, I'm so glad that that's what you're, I, I'm so glad because I feel like I see it a lot the other way around and yep kind of a jumbled message when that's being said. And also like, it's, you know, still segregating people instead of trying to bring us together and make it like one thing. Um, So yeah, there's composers and they come in all shapes and sizes and, and colors. And it, you know, having that variety is going to lead to different perspectives, which we want, but um, it needs to be done in a way that it's not, we're just not putting people out there because of how they look, regardless of what they look like, you right. know, whether they're part of the majority or not, yeah. um, is because of what they're doing. That's awesome. Yeah, but and and as you mentioned, it's the and I'm glad that you you mentioned you said this and you said this with the the spirit that you did. There might be an assumption for some people that if they see your face on on a, on a poster, that there's some type of unfortunately tokenism. Yeah. With that, when know like you're on there because you did the work mm-hmm. <laughs> and that and and i and i am not gonna get that pushback if my face is on one right like, exactly. and i ha- and i like and that's someone something like i have to realize yeah like i'm not gonna have to deal with that blowback but you might yes yes and i don't want to take two steps forward and one step back right i want it to be i want it to be constantly moving in a forward direction so things like Participating in Girls March, um, mm. I think, is one way to to help that in a, in a really healthy way yeah. um, by interacting with young the younger generation and seeing people who actually are are skilled and talented and and qualified 
in front of them, you know? Right. All right. We're going to get to some more sillier questions. Uh, okay. if that's, if that's all right. Um, <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, what's the most impractical speaking of clothing, what's uh-huh. the most impractical item of clothing you own? Oh, dude, I have so many shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten a few. I have so many shoes. <laughs> I think I have a, a little bit of a collector uh, gene in me. A, uh-huh. a little while back, I was, you know, collecting these kind of vinyl toys that are really cute. And, you know, there's a lot of design put in them and you, you get them specialized by different uh, artists, which is, is really cool. But I ran out of space. I don't have any more places to put them. So I moved from that to a much more expensive thing to collect, and that is shoes. Um, you know, I've gotten really big in the sneaker game, and I have quite a collection. Not crazy. I don't have a whole room or wall dedicated to it. I'm trying to stay away from that level of, of collection, but I do have quite a few. Um, yeah, my students are aware of it. I hope I'm not giving them, like, a... Uh, like a problem as well. I've had, I had recently like a handful of students that got jobs over the summer that hadn't before. And I asked them like, what are you guys going to spend your money on? Like, are you saving it so you can, you know, have a car and get around or are you saving it for college? Like, and most of them were like, Oh, so that I can buy shoes. (laughs) Like, Oh no, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) I, I hear it. That's awesome. Do you have, do you have a, um, like one pair that is like the the gold okay. standard for. Yeah, you know, I I like a lot of different brands of sneakers, but I find like Nike. I tend to find a lot more variety of shoes that can fit me, um, and so there's a, a few of those pairs that I really love. There's there's one pair that I don't wear very often. It's like the the Jordan ones, and it's like a shattered backboard edition, like for women, and those are really really cool. But I think I have a pair that is a like some gold. Um, Air Max 97s that they re-released in like 2017, I think. And those are my all-time favorites. They go with like everything that I wear. They look really unique. Uh, they're super comfortable. And uh, I wear those all the time. Those are my favorites. But I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get rid of a single one. I definitely, you know, there's like the minimalist trends, the people to like, let me get rid of all the junk in my house so that my mind can be clear. I could never be a minimalist. <laughs> I love clothes and shoes too much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. All right. Next question. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? <clears throat> okay. That's, that's, that's a good one. I have developed because like I mentioned before, I'm very small and to uh, be respected in some cases, dealing with uh, in different situations that I find myself in all the time. I've developed like a, a mechanism to be able to be taken seriously. And one of those I have inherited from my dad who inherited it from his grandmother, who was like, like, like a badass. Like everyone was scared of her all the time uh, from what I hear. Uh, but it's just like this stone cold face <laughs> that like when uh, BS is coming my way mm-hmm. or like someone's being ridiculous, I think I just naturally go towards. Mm-hmm. And there's a friend of mine um, who's also a composer and a percussionist and he writes for professional music, Jonathan Anderson, who I went to school with. And now uh, he's basically like a brother to me um, every Sunday for like the past 10 years or so, Doug and John and I go get tacos 
and we talk about teaching and we talk about composition. We talk about video games and movies and it's a, it's a really good hang, but it's also nice to have that uh, dialogue with someone that also creatively does what you do. Um, but he knows me very, very well. And so he, he, from time to time, will remind me of that look. He's like, oh, I know that look that turns like, uh, like brings hairs on the back of the neck of even like the, the biggest, baddest, like six foot t- tall dude will be intimidated by this look. And so he, he kind of brings it out on me sometimes. He does a great job. <laughs> nice. Uh, I, I, all right. So this is a audio podcast can can you demonstrate the look no i can't i can't do it on commands okay (laughs) it is just it is like in my genes to be able to pull it out i don't even do it intentionally it just i don't even realize it sometimes gotcha yeah fair enough okay next question now that you mentioned movies what's a great movie what's a terrible movie this is tough because there's so many great movies and i love so many of them i'm gonna give you two uh i hope that's okay sure uh, the first one is Jurassic Park. The original? Um, uh, the OG Jurassic yeah. Park. I love it. it is, I, I'm nostalgic for it. Um, as a kid, like most kids, I was really into dinosaurs. I still think they're pretty rad as an adult. And so it, that movie came out and I, I was pretty little, but I remember like going to the theater and my parents took me and a friend's like when it opened at midnight and we sat in the front row back when that was the thing, like mm-hmm. go big or go home. And we're sitting there craning our necks the whole time. Yeah. Like just seeing it at this weird angle, but that's what you do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and just being like totally amazed. Uh, these dinosaurs are real. Like that scene where like the very first time, you know, Alan Grant sees the Brachiosaurus in the field and he's like brought to his knees. Like that looks so real to me. Yeah. Now going back and checking out that movie, it's like, this looks ridiculous. Yeah. 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 Terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think there was just a sense of wonder and awe of like seeing that movie. They were terrifying and majestic. All of that soaking that in was really impactful. So much so that when we went to Hawaii, I was dragging Doug around all the like movie filming locations. We did tours for that. Like he was probably exhausted by it, but I loved it. <laughs> so that's a good movie. Uh, another one that I really like, going kind of back to the space theme, is Contact. Oh yeah, if you're watching that one, which is like a Carl Sagan story it's based upon his novel, and uh, and uh, you know with um, what is her name? Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster, thank you. Yeah. It's like the main character, and she's she's this scientist. I don't know. That kind of goes with the theme a little bit there. Um, who's got like this? Just just raw determined nature to hunt for life outside of our, ourselves and it's just a beautiful story and the movie's executed really well music's pretty good in it um yeah and that one just like pulls at my heartstrings for a number of reasons every time I watch it um okay so you said a bad movie yeah okay 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 so I don't know if you saw this one I mean this is pretty old too but like maybe in the early 2000s there's this movie called The Room yes what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i have a friend that's into really bad like horror movies he's like really like halloween is his favorite holiday and every halloween he or october he's like playing tons and tons of terrible awful god-awful movies and he's the one that turned us on to this thing but yeah the room which is like this odd thing written by written and directed and starred in by this kind of european looking dude kind of a almost an Arnold Schwarzenegger type, but the story is so like, like basic, like this guy and his fiance cheats on him with his friends. Right. But the dude himself 
looks so out of place because he's way older than everyone else that he's acting with. And he's like got this jet black, greasy hair and he's kind of jacked, like roided up. And he's got this very strange accent and the dialogue is terrible. (laughs) And the scenes are so awkward. It's like like British office level awkwardness, (laughs) but it's so serious. It takes itself so serious. It's a terrible, horrible movie, but it's gained this like cult following of people that love it and like will recite the lines in theaters. It's it's simultaneously awful, but also amazing. Well, and it, there's a there's a like a book that was written about it, a movie about. Oh the, yeah, a okay. movie about the movie. Like yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 so bonkers. It's it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Relatedly, what's a favorite book? There's a lot of good ones that I can think of. I don't know that this is like necessarily a favorite in terms of like enjoyment to experience or to read but one that has been really impactful for me is this book called uh can't hurt me by excuse me by david goggins um david goggins is like a former navy seal and he's also kind of this superhuman guy like the book at the beginning I, I listened to the audiobook form of it which was really cool because it's kind of done like a podcast like he didn't write it himself he told the story to an author who wrote it and the the guy who wrote it is actually the one that's reading it but but David is there and they're interacting in in between and telling stories that didn't make it in the book and expanding upon things so that is probably the best way to experience the book but the first part of it talks about Goggins is like um uh, childhood and that's pretty intense that's hard to get through because he he went through some really difficult stuff um but he came out of that um kind of deciding like he wanted to be in control of his life and he he decided he wanted to to try and be a navy seal and he's african-american and you know at the time i think there was he was like the 31st or 32nd one ever um to be a navy seal and uh even just his experience getting to it was just this constant uh, wall of challenges and, and things he had to overcome. Like he had to go through BUDS training three times and it's an intense thing to become a sailor. People, people die yeah. in the process and he had to do it three times before he finally, uh, he made it through. Um, and then since then he's gone on to do like all sorts of insane superhuman things. Like he's pull up, world record holder for a long time and he will like intentionally do marathons and races that are meant to be done by teams he will do it by himself to prove what he's capable of and he will break his body down to like the absolute like almost death um because it's it's about trying to push himself mentally further and further like he welcomes challenges and he he tries to seek them out um he's just an incredibly inspiring person and I, I, it's it's so funny. I came across him on a podcast and then also simultaneously with a recommendation from Jeff Osmore about this other book that's mm. called My Life with the Seal or Living with the Seal, something like that, mm. in which uh, an entrepreneur reached out to David and was like, hey, will you come live with me and train me for a month? And then it was so impactful for this dude that he wrote a whole book about the experience. But then on the podcast that I listened to, Goggins didn't mention it once. It wasn't a blip on his radar <laughs> because there's so many other things that are that are driving him. Um, so yeah, that book, uh, if you ever feel weak or want to complain about something or are not sure like how to accomplish the next, feel stuck or overwhelmed, like reading that and taking that in is really incredibly useful. Um, so. Awesome. No, that's great. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I need to... I need to look that up. 
Okay. Yeah, he's kind of a crazy person. Yeah. Crazy person in a good way, though. Yeah. Because you talked about contact, and obviously I'm still looking at your amazing photo yeah. behind you. Um, what was the first your first interaction with space and kind of being inv- interested in that? You know, my, my dad was like, he wasn't a musician, and he probably thought a little bit more logically, but he also enjoyed and appreciated music. So there was that aspect, I think, that we shared. But he um, was one of the first pers- people, like, I remember going on a walk, and we were talking and like looking at the stars and he was saying something like, uh, you know, what you're seeing, the light that you're seeing here now is from a long time ago. We're basically looking into the past right now when we look yeah. up. And that was just this kind of realization that I had never thought about before. It was so incredibly cool. And, you know, also some of the things that, you know, you discover by, by learning a little bit more about the universe is like how incredibly small we are and how insignificant we are. And sometimes we get so wound up in our own problems because it's right in front of our face all the time that we forget that we're like hurtling through space on this rock spinning, you know, incredibly fast, that this thing is so incredibly huge. And I think just the the vastness of it, also kind of the, the, the same experience you might see by looking at the ocean or seeing mountains, just it kind of brings some reality to our life and keeps you in check. And there's something about that that I think drives me to it, constantly trying to learn about it. Um, but I don't know if there was kind of one singular event or experience that really stuck with me as as much as just a lot of little things that kind of would be, uh, it just clicked with my nature and the things that I was drawn to, you know, that I've constantly found. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, that That's awesome. I, I think of, I don't know if you've seen, the it's like one of the first times they they posted what the Hubble telescope was looking at. And then there'd be like, this is a shot of, you know, like, you know, they had never seen that far back basically. And it was like, like if you were to take your poster, it was like in between two of the smallest dots. Yes. And it was like, and it was just this like incredible infusion of light. And it was like, that's just in that small dot. Yeah. <laughs> in that one spot. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, Carl Sagan had that show Cosmos on for a long time. And I think I, I, I haven't seen it. I need to like do, do a little digging to try and get my hands on um, those episodes. You know, the Neil deGrasse Tyson version of it that came out yep. a few years ago was great, of course. But yeah, there's that famous pale blue dot image where the first time that we actually saw ourselves took a picture of ourselves and it's just so incredibly small yeah. and it's so impactful when yeah. you take it in in that way I mean that's what great art is about right is it affecting you and that's a perfect example of it do you have a sports fandom not really I guess for a little while there I mean it's been a while probably been about a few years since I've been able to, to watch any of this but uh both Doug and I were a little bit into mixed martial arts, like oh, okay. watching mixed martial arts. Um, we we studied a form of uh, Kali, which is a, a Philippine martial arts, um, mm-hmm. for a couple of years um, while we were teaching in Sherman. There was a guy out there, um, Wiley Mitchell, who had a dojo, and mm-hmm. he Kali uses these like large rattan sticks. So it was kind of like a no-brainer. Like, well, those are sticks, and I'm going to always have sticks, and I'm little, and so I need to learn how to protect myself. So that was kind of fun. An eye-opening in a sense that, like, uh, of doing something that is physically challenging that isn't related to music. So as a teacher, like, realizing, oh, I, maybe I need to 
do this a little bit slower <laughs> because my students probably don't pick up on all the details or, you know, maybe we need a few more reps of this thing before moving on. That was really obvious and eye-opening when taking, a, taking on a new skill, learning a new skill. But at the same time, watching uh, mixed martial arts, I listen a lot to Joe Rogan Experience podcast. I like his podcast because he brings on a vast amount of different guests, including athletes and martial artists and trainers. Um, and kind of seeing it from this perspective of the, the technique and the theory and um, the mechanics of how someone would train to become an effective uh, martial artist is fascinating to me because there's so many things that relate directly to what I do as a musician. You know, even even just like the actual event, the the fight, like there's a lot of inspiration or not inspiration, but a lot of uh, improvisation that goes into to that thing. You can't know what is going to happen. You have to train for any possible uh, thing to happen and just be ready to move and see it on the fly. Um, so from that standpoint is I mean, it can seem like this really brutal and kind of barbaric thing. But when you understand the theory and the training and all of the discipline that goes into it. It's super relatable and, and really cool, but I haven't watched any in a, in a long time. Um, it's, it's been a little harder because usually that's kind of a social thing to like go to someone's house and people, you know, have it on TV and we haven't been doing that because of COVID. So. What is your greatest non-life threatening injury? That's a good question, but I don't think I've ever really been injured. I haven't ever broken anything. I haven't ever sprained anything. I mean, I fell on my knee once that kind of was, that kind of sucked for a moment, like, uh, banged it up, but I didn't fracture. I've never fractured anything. Yeah. I've been really fortunate. Maybe I'm a little too cautious. Maybe that's what that says about me. I'm not sure. <laughs> you need to get back into mixed martial arts then. Maybe I need to do yeah. some more mixed martial arts or something. I'm not sure, but yeah, yeah I've never, fortunately, Hopefully that stays consistent. I've never had a major injury. What is, what's either the strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? Doug and I were doing our Team Eastless thing. There's an organization in Dallas. I don't know if it still exists, honestly, but it's called Art Love Magic. And they were kind of just advocates of the arts and uh, with local Dallas uh, painters and musicians and performers and things like that. And they were put on events and sometimes they would have like a stage, at, you know, an arts festival and invite you know, people that they had contacts with to, to perform there. And there was a lady that I met through that that had uh, was friends with this guy who is a you know, big time immigration lawyer in Dallas. And he had this huge mansion. And I guess every Christmas he would throw this big party with like, you know, Dallas elites coming to it and you know, people that he had represented coming to it. And so uh, she reached out to us to play at this thing. And it was really short notice. So, I mean, it's a Christmas event, but I didn't really have a lot of time to put, I don't have like a ton of Christmas songs in my back pocket to just pull out. So it was a couple of Christmas covers, but it was also like, original TV slash stuff. That's what you're going to get. We roll up to this house and we're like in this, you know, this guy's living room and there's like a whole spread of food and tons of people and it's decorated gorgeously. Um, We're kind of in the side room and we set, we're setting our stuff up and people are like looking at us like, what is, what is happening here? What is this about? And we start playing and you can tell people don't really know what to expect 
expect or what this is, but they're intrigued by it. Cause I, you know, I'm expecting people to come in and be like, okay, that's weird. And then they immediately leave. Right. Um, but they would come in and they'd hang out and then they'd stay and then they, they were hyping and it was like, no, I don't know what this is, but it's really cool. And at the end of it, you know, they're getting a lot of questions like, what is this? This is xylophone that you're playing. Right. Of course. Of course. Like the standard mm-hmm. thing that you get when you play vibraphone anywhere. Um, or marimba. Like it's the same. Or marimba same too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like, no, this is a vibraphone. This is what I do. And it's always interesting, too, to hear what people hear in my music, you know, what they relate to. Like, oh, this is like, you know, for musicians, it's often like, oh, I hear Chick Corea in here or I hear like um, some Pat Metheny stuff in here. Um, for non-musicians, it's, it's jazz. It's like straight up jazz, which is not at all <laughs> what I'm doing. But, you know, they hear the vibraphone sound. They, it's instrumental and they, they kind of relate to that. So it's 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 fascinating. But yeah, after afterwards, we hung out for a little bit. But Doug and I both were like, "Yeah, this is not our crowd. We're just gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna bolt." It paid really well, though, and ultimately it was a positive experience. It was just we had no idea what we were getting into, and it was a little strange. Yeah. Did you now just just for happenstance? Did you like grab a plate of something that looked really good and just accidentally dump it into like a you know a stick bag or something like that? Oh no! But we, no, we ate. We ate, like, like legit pigged out afterwards. You know, we had full reign of like all of that stuff. That was great. That part yeah. of it was perk. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's awesome. All right, Ev, Trisha, last question. What one piece of art, whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything like that, uh, has impacted you the most recently? The most is a tough question. <laughs> I try to be open to a lot of things all the time, so I feel like I'm impacted a lot. Recently, I saw that the actor Sonny Chiba had passed away, who's like um, been in a lot of, uh, you know, Japanese films and martial arts films and has a history of that. Um, but he was in one of my favorite movies of all time that I didn't mention earlier, which is Kill Bill. Oh, yeah. Tarantino fan. I really only recently saw uh, Pulp Fiction for the first time, like probably like five years ago. Hmm. I remember we were watching it and like, wow, that was amazing. Is there more like this? I was asking Doug, like, is there more movies? Like, he's like, no, this is kind of like, there's only a few like this. Um, but Kill Bill is a fantastic, uh, like it's two movies, right? And there's one particular scene in it with Sonny Chiba and um, uh, Uma Thurman where they're in this restaurant and I've watched it multiple times. And, uh, you know, she comes in, her character Beatrix uh, and into this like small restaurant and Sonny Chiba is like, they're making food or making sushi or whatever. And there's it's this initial interaction of, you know, here's this like bubbly, like light, young, blonde girl with blonde hair, American, and she's cute and she's kind of flirty and she's speaking some Japanese, but it's kind of broken. And then the scene like very subtly, but very rapidly changes to like this heavier tone because really she's coming in because she's looking for this master sword maker to, to give her this sword so that she can go and, uh, like get this guy bill who has done her wrong and so many people wrong um and she she feels like uh hattori hanzo who is really this guy who's pretending to be a sushi chef is partially responsible for all the damage that bill has done and so it's such a simple scene and it's so short and there's limited dialogue and there's only like two actors really three actors in it 
But there is so much context in that one moment that you can learn so much, not only because of the writing, um, but because of the cinematography, because of the acting, because of the pacing. All of the elements in that one scene are so perfectly executed that it's just it's just absolute magic. Right. You can stand alone and just watch that scene on its own and know that something you can like feel that there's a story there. Even if you don't know the details of the characters, you can kind of follow along, even not knowing any other things about the movie. And that is just really impressive, uh, like God tier level of creativity on multiple fronts from multiple people. And, you know, I greatly appreciate that uh, as a as a creator myself. <laughs> awesome. All right, Patricia, we are done. Whoa, that's awesome. Thank you so much. What's that? How long was that? That was a a little Two and a half hours. Yeah, that's a lot of talking for me. Like I said, as an introverted person, (laughs) my nature is not, is to to stay in my hole, in my space. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was awesome. That was really incredible. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you. You, it It was wonderful on my end too. Such a total pleasure talking to Patricia over these past two episodes. I look forward to hopefully meeting her soon in person, and I hope for the best for her, Doug, and all of the places that are fortunate enough to employ them. This week's rave is the 2020 documentary Cured, now showing as part of PBS's Independent Lens documentary series and directed by Patrick Salmon and Bennett Singer. This film focuses on the fight in the 1960s and 70s from LGBTQIA plus activists, lawyers, doctors, and others to get the American Psychiatric Association, or the APA, to remove homosexuality from its list of disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, referred to as the DSM. What was important to document here were all of the ways that the LGBTQIA plus community were considered, dealt with, and stigmatized during this time not too long ago. One side of this focuses on the ways that this community had to hide from the public at large to be in happy and safe places. Another element focuses on the ways that, with homosexuality considered an illness, anyone who was homosexual was considered in need of being, quote, cured of their disease, unquote. This included using shock therapy to get folks to tamp down their urges if they saw someone of the same sex they were attracted to. And it also refers to some of the ways that folks needed to have their, quote, illnesses, unquote, prayed away. A third element took a stab at the patriarchal nature and the lack of diversity within the medical establishment at the time. One of the things that becomes clear as you watch the film was that this patriarchy that was within medicine at the time, with nearly everyone involved making decisions being straight white males with an inclination only towards heterosexual relationships, got turned into a stubbornness to not see what was going on. When you don't know or have never really talked to someone who doesn't have the same lens and frame of reference as you do, Assumptions are made and acted upon, and then codified into medical practice. 
And as one activist pointed out in the film, the problematic nature of this viewpoint becomes clear once you realize that not only do doctors think that you're a problem that needs to be fixed, but LGBTQIA plus folks internalize this and they themselves think that they're a problem that needs to be fixed. And that is incredibly ruinous to one's personal mental health. Lastly, the title refers to a headline that came out after the disorder was removed from the DSM, saying that 20 million folks in the world had suddenly been, quote, cured of their illness. A really insightful look at one of the many fronts in pushing for LGBTQIA plus rights, check out Cured, now streaming on PBS. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every show and the notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.